Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All right, so if you want to be with me in the Bible uh, this morning, obviously we're going to be concentrating on 1 Samuel chapter 1, and 2, we're going to be looking at Hannah. All right, but I'm going to catch you up just a little bit in case you don't know your Old Testament. All right, some of you I taught the motions to a long time ago. I wonder if you can still do them. 44, no, how many motions? 77 motions to the Old Testament, under two minutes. Um, the first, uh, the book of the Bible, Genesis, is broken up into two parts. The first part is about four great events. Creation, fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel, or the building of the nations. God made us in absolute perfection. He blessed us with posterity, with um, possessions, with position, with power. Everything was perfect. You know what happened. We sinned. We fell away from God. Right then, God established the um, idea of substitutionary atonement. We see the first death of the innocent sacrifice that covers up their nakedness. Um, we see them, they're kicked out of the garden. You see what happens in the family, the breakdown, what sin causes over time. And it's not long before all of creation is corrupt with sin. And what does God send? The flood. And so, but God had already made a promise that a redeemer was coming. He looked at Satan and he said, I will put hatred between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Right there in the garden, right after sin, God looks at the enemy and says, it's war, it's on, and I win. There is a redeemer coming who will destroy you. So when sin had corrupted all mankind, could God have destroyed everyone? Y'all know that's a trick question, right? Right? You're like, God can do anything he wants. No, he can't. Blasphemy. He cannot do anything he wants because he cannot go against his very good nature. He cannot break a promise. And he already promised that one from the family of Eve would come and destroy Satan. And so he found a man by the name of Noah. He showed grace to Noah. Noah responded in faith and he built the ark. It's the beautiful picture of Jesus being in Christ Jesus for our salvation, being saved from judgment. We are safe in Christ Jesus. And so we have this beautiful picture of the ark. They come out as a new beginning, but as long as man is alive, what? Sin is alive. And it's not long before you have one of the greatest revolts in all of history known as the Tower of Babel. They completely revolt against God under the leadership of a man by the name of Nimrod. And they build this city refusing to obey God and spread out and spread his name all among the nations. And instead, they defy him. They say, we can live without you. We don't need you. We're going to make a city and a tower to the heavens. And in that spot, we see this influx of idolatry. And God says what? Oh, no, you don't. And so he comes down and he confuses their languages. They spread out according to languages. And over time, the nations are born. A promise has been made. A redeemer is coming. We have a hint of what it's going to be like. It's going to be the death of an innocent substitute. God then finds one man by the name of who? Abraham. Now we have many nations. He finds a man by the name of Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you. All nations will be blessed through you and I'm going to give your descendants a land that I will show you. Leave your home and your family and follow after me. Abraham obeys God. He does exactly that. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has how many sons? Twelve sons. His name is changed to Israel, so they are known as the tribes of Israel. Do you remember learning all this stuff in the past? So you have the tribes of Israel, but Jacob has one son by the name of 
Joseph, who is a key character because he is the person that gets them from the land of Israel, from a family of 70, moves them to Egypt, where they become a nation of approximately 2 million people. Now we're in the book of what? Exodus. And so in Exodus, we see that God's nation has grown and they have grown through bondage. They are put into slavery under the pharaohs, but they, God hears their cry and he frees them from bondage. He takes two million people out under the leadership of Moses by God's mighty right hand, by the ten plagues. The nation is formed. They leave, they exit out of Egypt, and they end up at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, he looks at now this nation, and he basically says, will you be my nation? God is a gentleman. He never forces anyone to have a relationship with him. He asks. And he said, basically, will you marry me? Will you love me and only me? Get rid of all your old boyfriend's pictures, no images, no idols. Honor my name because you are going to bear it. You will represent it. And my names represent who I am. Make me the most important thing in your life. Honor the Sabbath. If you want to be married to me, listen, my burden is easy. My yoke is, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Be like me. What is my nature like? Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not murder. I'm a God of life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I keep my promises. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not covet. Be like me. Will you marry me? And what did they say? Yes. We will do all you've asked. <laughs> what do we know? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we see Moses do something that actually disgusts us when we read about it. But it's necessary. He takes the blood of the innocent lamb and he sprinkles it on top of the people because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. They enter into a covenant with God known as the Ten Commandments. It's a marriage covenant of relationship. And then God sets up the entire sacrificial system with the tabernacle so that he can dwell amongst his people. All of that takes about a year. But we see that what he told Abraham is coming into fruition. There is a nation. He will be the God of that nation. And now it is time for them to go get their land. You know that scenario, they go and they're going to go get their land and they prove to be unfaithful and God says, oh really, turn your fannies around, take another lap around the mountain. Matter of fact, you're going to be taking laps for the next 39 years. And when the younger generation died out and the older generation, did I say that right? The older generation died out and the younger generation uh, grew up. He then once again brought them to the edge of the promised land and he said under Moses, now you're adults, will you marry me? Second law, all over again. And what did they say? Yes. And Moses hands off the leadership to Joshua. Joshua brings them into the land. God dries up the Jordan River. They begin to battle for the land, starting with Jericho. What was the purpose? God told them, I want you to go in and get your inheritance, and I want you to free that land of its inhabitants because I want you and you alone set up in that land. Why? For those of you that have been to Israel with me, you know why. Because the greatest trade route in all of the world went through the land of Israel. It went through this narrow strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea. It was called the Via Maris, and literally the entire world traveled this trade route. There were two north-south trade routes. There was the Via Maris along the Mediterranean Sea, and there was the King's Highway. And then there were very few east-west connectors. And so God placed his people in that land because he wanted them to be an influence on the world. They were his nation. He had taught them how to live. Their whole lifestyle was based on a moral code, code social justice, meaning taking care of the community and practical kindness. And he wanted that displayed in this land for the world to see. The problem is, when they got in there, it got tough. And so instead of finishing the job and freeing the land of its inhabitants, they gave up, they settled. And so they settled amongst the other people 
So when they did that, instead of over time them influencing the world, what happened? The world began to influence them. And they enter into what we call the cycle of the judges. This is what it looks like. They began to worship the gods of the other people. Why is that a problem? They married God. They married Yahweh. They're cheating. And then when that happened, God would take his hands away and they would be oppressed by some nation. Y'all know my joke, the Midianites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the mosquito bites. It doesn't matter what I, right? The Philistines. And God would allow them to be oppressed and they would cry out to their God for deliverance and he was always faithful. What a faithful groom. And he would raise up a judge to deliver them. Ehud, Gideon, Samson, Deborah. And that judge would free them and as long as that judge was alive and was enforcing only the worship of Jehovah, they would live in peace. The minute that judge died, it did not take long for them to take another lap around the mountain, another lap around the cycle. That's why I have told you so many times that the book of Judges, to me, represents the clearest difference between religious reformation and true spiritual revival. Religious reformation is a temporary change of outward behavior because of constraints. Spiritual revival is a permanent change in the heart. I love what Bob Goff says. If you've never, if you haven't read his book, Everybody Always, he's so awesome. If you've ever heard him speak, you just can't help but smile. He says, when I finished law school, I bought a yellow pickup truck from my dad. It didn't have many miles on it and was, it was in pretty good condition. I gave him the cash, he tossed me the keys, and I climbed in. As I was pulling out of the driveway, he tapped on the window and I rolled it down. He pointed at the hood and said, you'll want to change the oil. He pointed at the hood and said, what? You want to change the oil? I nodded dutifully and drove home. My dad is a great guy and I love him a lot, but it bugged me that he was still telling me what to do even though I was a grown man. However, I brushed it off as just one of those things dads do. The next day, I drove over to see my dad. We had a great visit. Before I left, he told me again how I wanted to change the oil in my truck. Sorry, oil. <laughs> Y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. I say oil, full, sorry, oil in my truck. This seemed to happen every time we got together, and I started to see it as a kind of stalemate. I was an adult, and I didn't want someone telling me what to do. After all, this was now my truck. Each time my dad told me about the oil, I grumbled under my breath that I'd changed the oil when I felt like it and not a minute before. Even though I knew my dad was right, I could have had five cans of Penn's oil, a funnel, and a filter in the front seat, and I still wouldn't have done it. Why? It's simple. Most people don't want to be told what they want. It's in our DNA to assess our environment, take in the inputs, and decide for ourselves what we'll do. We resist in several ways. Sometimes we send people the message with a sharp word or a gesture to create some distance. Other times we resist by being passively detached and polite while projecting a, loud, a load of indifference. The reason we do this is as simple as it is complicated. Even when someone's suggestions aren't intended to be manipulative, they still feel like it. My dad didn't mean harm when he kept telling me I should change the oil in my truck. Quite the opposite. He loved me. He knew I wasn't always mindful of certain things in my life. We both knew car maintenance was one of those things. He knew that people who don't change the oil in their trucks end up with dead trucks. Because he loved me and didn't want my truck to die, he told me what, he, what I should want to do about it. He was trying to help me avoid something bad from happening, but it backfired in the way it landed with me. The same thing happens to all of us. Some of us have been told what we want our whole lives. We've been told we should want to go out for sports or not. We should want a college education or a graduate degree or a particular career. We should want to date this person and not the other one. None of it is mean-spirited, of course, and no one means any harm. It just doesn't sit well with us. A similar but different problem happens in the churches and schools and faith communities too. 
We're told by someone what God wants us to do and not to do. We're told we shouldn't drink or cuss or watch certain movies. We're told we should want to have quiet times in the morning and talk to strangers about a relationship with God. We're told we should want to go on mission trips and witness to people. And sometimes we don't even, we don't even really know what the words mean. But often, just for a while, after long enough, what looks like faith isn't really faith anymore. It's just compliance. The problem with mere compliance is it turns us into actors. Rather than making decisions ourselves, we read the lines off the script, someone we were told to respect handed to us, and we sacrifice our ability to decide for ourselves. The fix for all this is as easy as the problem is hard. Instead of telling people what they want, we need to tell them who they are. This works every time. We'll become in our lives whoever the people we love the most say we are. God did this constantly in the Bible. He told Moses he was a leader and Moses became one. He told Noah he was a sailor and he became one. He told Sarah she was a mother and she became one. He told Peter he was a rock and he led the church. He told Jonah he'd be fish food and well, he was. If we wanna love people the way God loved people, let God's spirit do the talking when it comes to telling people what they want. All the directions we're giving to each other aren't getting people to the feet of Jesus. More often, the unintended result is that they lead these people back to us. Here's the problem. When we make ourselves the hall monitor of other people's behavior, we risk having approval become more important than Jesus' love. Another problem with trying to force compliance is it only lasts for a while, usually only until the person gets a different set of directions from someone else. Faith lasts a lifetime and will carry us through the most difficult of times without a word spoken. Telling people what they should want turns us into a bunch of sheriffs. People who are becoming love lose the badge and give away grace instead. Tell the people you meet who they're becoming and trust that God will help people find their way towards beautiful things and their lives without you. Listen, the people of Israel had a heart problem and this is what we know. Oh, they'd be compliant for a while, as long as a strong leader enforced and told them what to do and set up constraints. But the minute those constraints were gone, what did they do? Boom. And so what we need to do, and especially as parents, and listen, I'm not telling you let them go willy-nilly and do whatever they want, that you don't give them direction, that you don't train them up in the way they should go. Absolutely. But over time, what begins to happen? You have got to find a way to look at behaviors, see who they are, and engage the heart. Don't just reprove, engage the heart. Because you need a heart revival. You don't just want spiritual reformation. Because the minute they leave their home and your home and those constraints are removed, dear Lord, right? And I will tell you, sometimes you have every good intention and it still doesn't hit them right. I remember not too long ago, a few months ago, Zachary looked at me in a very intense conversation when he was sharing with me how in some ways I had been a legalistic parent and that I had in some ways made him feel shame. And as I apologized, because that was never my intention, because, you know, I'm just a holy roller preacher kind of person, that I looked at him and said, man, that was never my intention. And he said, I wish parents would teach more through parables like Jesus. I'm like, who raised you? <laughs> and he goes, through your stories. And I go, Zach, you know what? I think the reason I didn't do that well is because I felt like if I told you all of my stories, all of my mess, and I was vulnerable with you, that you would think I was giving you permission to do the crud that I did, and that scared me. And so instead, I was parenting out of fear. And I said, what I should have done is gotten down off my throne and looked you in the eye, and I should have taught you with my life, and then you would have realized I too am human, and no one in our house is expected to be perfect. Hindsight's such a great thing, isn't it? But here's the thing, it's never too late. No, it's never too late. There can be pain, but own your stuff. That was not my intention. And in the end of the conversation, I love you, Mom, and I know you did the best you can, and you did what you thought was right at the time. And I said, yep, 
but here we go. Now you know me. I've been filleted in front of you, so here we go. It's never too late. Spiritual, re spiritual revival is what we're after. And so here we are in this time of the judges that is described by this last line. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Holy moly. How would you describe that if everybody was doing in your home what they thought was right in their own eyes? Chaos? Total chaos. And so this is the environment that Hannah is living in. Hannah is going to be the mother of the last judge, Samuel. He is the transitional figure. We're going to learn about him. I'm going to review. He is the transitional figure from the time of the judges to the monarchy when we have kings under King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And so you know that Samuel has got to have an amazing mother, and we're going to take a look at her because in 1 Samuel, she is the introductory character. All right, so look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephraithite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, will meet all those people, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. She used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. You have to understand that in this time when everybody was doing what they saw right, Hannah really shines as a star. You have to understand the situation Hannah is in in her culture. To be barren, the Talmud said, is to be considered as good as dead. How would you like that to be your worth in your culture? You're considered as good as dead. Why? Because if you're not producing children, listen, you have no honor or respect in your community. Why? Because this was an agricultural community. And in order to basically make a living, you had children in order to work. Because the more children you had, the more workers you had in your fields, the more workers you have, the greater the harvest, the greater the harvest, the greater the cash. This is backwards today, right? We're popping kids out. We're working for them. Y'all don't think that's funny? Like, we've gone a completely 180. What the heck? We ask our kids to do something, they go, oh. Listen, I birthed you so you could work for me. What are you talking about? <laughs> right? In this culture, not only was it agricultural, listen, they didn't have 501Ks and Social Security. So in order for them to have security for a future, they needed children and specifically sons because sons were the ones that could own property and have wealth. And so your future security depended on the fact that you had heirs. And so here she is, and she cannot give birth to any children. She is barren. It was also very important for the survival of the nation, let me tell you, because you are surrounded by other people groups. This was a tribal community. They were always fighting over land. And in order to build a nation, you need sons, and sons especially defend a nation. And so this was vital to their culture. So if you were a woman and you were not producing children, you did not have respect in your culture. Brugman says this in his commentary, barrenness is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. Listen to what he says about it. There is no foreseeable future. There is no human power to invent a future. You have a great desire for a change in your future, for something in your future. You have a hope for something, but you don't have the ability to get it done. That's hopelessness. That is hopelessness. Do you realize that psychology 
groups, papers, they all agree. They may give seven or eight things, but they all agree on three things that we need to experience hope. Number one is mastery, meaning that we feel like we have some power over our own story. We have some power over our own life. Number two is survival that we feel like we have the ability to problem solve, that we can work and solve our problems and we can survive, we can get it done. And lastly, attachment, that we belong to someone or some, some group that we're not isolated. And so in order to have hope, we need those three things. So if barrenness is a metaphor for hopelessness, how was Hannah feeling? Well, what is the opposite of mastery? If you feel like you have no control over anything, then what do you feel? Powerlessness. What is the opposite of survival or problem solving? Means if you can't solve the problem, then it's doom. It's when you get that diagnosis and there's nothing that can be done. That's a feeling of doom. And lastly, what's the opposite of attachment? Yeah, isolation. So I want you to think about in your lives when you have had feelings of just pure hopelessness. What were you feeling? Were you feeling a little bit like you had no control over anything? It was just all doom? No matter what you wanted or hoped for, you just had no power to get it done? and you felt completely isolated in your situation. That is how Hannah feels. And I'm gonna tell you right now, that's not how God created us to be. Because if you look in the garden, he created us to have perfect relationship with him and each other. He created us to be able to subdue the earth, to make it work for us, to figure out our problems, to create, to build, to have adventure. And he also gave us authority over his creation to be his image on the earth. He created us in an atmosphere where we had hope. And so Hannah right now is living with the attitude of hopelessness where she feels absolute doom. She feels powerless and she feels alienated. Hopelessness is said it's of someone who is certain to fail and be unsuccessful. The synonyms are impossible, pointless, futile, useless. It's the idea of worthless and insignificant. And that's how Hannah felt in her culture. Have you ever felt that? I'm going to tell you what, there are a lot of women out there who feel worthless and insignificant. What messages are we giving women today? Well, Facebook tells me I need to be beautiful. And if I'm not beautiful, I can edit my face until I am. Did y'all know that? Hillary can edit me so much, I look so good. The only problem is you wouldn't know me if I walked in Costco because I don't look like myself, right? So Facebook literally is nothing but fake news that we look beautiful at all times, that we need to be skinny, right? or we can angle the camera in a way to make us look skinny. I can't do that. Can y'all take a selfie that looks like anything? Because I can't, but these young people can look like crud. All right, I see them. Ponytail on the top of their head, it's not their best day. And they can angle a camera and take a selfie that looks like I don't know what. I can get ready, think I look awesome, that I'm about to go somewhere, take a selfie, and my nose is about three feet wide. I don't understand, right? It's fake news, but it tells us, honestly, we need to be beautiful, we need to be skinny, we need to have somebody that loves us, that will take us on all kinds of trips so we can post the pictures, and then we need to be a poet so that we can write something beautiful at the bottom of every picture, and our life's so great, right? And then Pinterest, Pinterest tells us we got to be the hostess with the mostest, that our house looks like Chip and JoJo designed it. We have to have a farm table with white platters, linen napkins, and greenery wrapped around it. We have the whole spread of food that we made ourselves, but we better not eat it because then, you know, we might get fat. So if I have you over, can you tell me how something tastes? Because honestly, this is ridiculous. We need to be crafters, and we need to be ready for every season, and... I mean, come on. 
Then if you have any kind of business prowess, you, you like read Forbes, what does that tell us? We have to be strong, we have to be decisive, not emotional, we need to be a man. We need to be more like men. And then Cosmo, ooh, I said Cosmo. Cosmo tells you stuff that you'd just be scared to even mention, right? I need to be sexy all the time, ready all the time, adventurous all the time. Good grief. Then you go to church. Don't forget those messages. I mean, you're hearing all the others. Then you go to church and it tells you you need to be a godly woman and a godly wife and honor him when he walks in the door. And I mean, God loves a gentle, quiet spirit. And y'all know I'm being facetious. I'm taking things totally out of character. But honestly, God loves a gentle, quiet spirit. That was taught so wrongly to me growing up, right? God loves me. He loves a gentle, quiet spirit before him, a teachable spirit. But when it comes to personality, that's not talking about personality. If God only loved a gentle, quiet spirit, he would have never made me. And I'm going to tell you right now, if he hadn't made me with the personality that I have, I wouldn't have reached so many high school students. I'm going to tell you right now. And I wouldn't reach college still today because you need a little edge. And so we have all of these ideas of what the world tells us makes us worthy and significant. And guess what? We can't be all those things. Women are trying to wear all these hats and be perfect and put a mask on and have this veneer and act like we've got everything together and we know we can't be and do all of that stuff. And then our young daughters are watching us try to do it. And if that doesn't make matters worse, because we're already being negative about ourselves, we're already feeling like a failure half the time, we're horrified if someone drops by. People don't drop by anymore, not because they don't want to be social. We're so wigged out if they walk in and our house is a mess. Right? Who cares? And if that's not bad enough, then there's Panina. Who's Panina? The other woman. That's who she is. Elkanah has a second wife. Why? Because Hannah's not producing heirs. He loves Hannah. He's crazy about her. But he has to have sons. And so in that culture, he took the second wife in order to have sons. And here comes Penina. And what does Penina do? Oh, my gosh. She sticks her finger in Hannah's womb all the time. She is constantly reminding her that she is not worthy, that she is insignificant. Why? Because she knows she's not loved. So in her insecurity, she has to bring the other person down. Why do we women do that? Why can't we just sit at a table and say, I feel like crud? How about you? Why do we have to compete and bring each other down when the whole world wants to do that anyway? And especially Christian women, we all have crud. Nobody is perfect. Quit acting like it because when you do that, you really are pushing people away. They are attracted to your vulnerability, not your perfection. And so here you have Panina making up for her insecurity by being a jerk. What does she do? Verse 6 says she provokes Hannah. That word in the Hebrew literally means to thunder or to roar like a storm. To thunder or roar like a storm. It's like being caught in a hurricane. Tim Keller says it's the only time in Scripture where this Hebrew word is actually not describing a storm. And so this harassment is continual ongoing. Let me ask you, who are your paninas? What are the things that are constantly telling you that you're not worthy or you're insignificant? If it's social media, turn the mess off. I mean, that's easy. I'm going to tell you what, if Hannah could have turned Panina off, are you kidding me? She'd have turned her off in a second. Half the time, we invite these feelings in with our thumb by scrolling. If it is a friend or family member, love them from a distance. Have boundaries. Let them be a front yard friend, maybe front porch. But don't let them in your bedroom. 
Don't let them be an intimate friend if all they want to do is remind you of your inadequacies. That tells me they actually have some self-work to do. Listen, Matthew uh, chapter 7, I want you to hear this because I don't want you to be a panina either. And I love the message. I love how the message speaks. So I'm going to read you a portion of Matthew chapter 7 to warn you not to be the panina to someone else. It says, don't pick on people. Jump on their failures. Criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face, when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Is that good or what? Don't be a panina. Don't tell people what they should do. Don't tell people what they should want. Tell them who they are. They are a child of the king. They are a daughter of God. They are wonderfully made. They are precious. They have a purpose in this life. You love on them so much. You help them find that purpose. Don't you constantly put your finger in their wound. That's not a friend. Verse 8, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? This is the funniest part of this whole story. Elkanah, Hannah, am I not enough, hon? Aren't I enough to fill all of your broken places? Aren't, isn't my love enough? Isn't my love worth more than ten sons? What's the answer? No! No! I know you mean well. He's crazy about her. Scripture says he gave her a double portion. There's nothing more loving than a double helping of mashed potatoes on your plate. Like, he made it known. He made it known to the world that he loved this woman. But guess what? It wasn't enough. She had her own wounds. And so, no, since he brings this subject up, which I call romantic salvation, let's talk about it for a minute. To this day, we still play fairy tales to our daughters that say that if a Prince Charming shows up and says she's enough, ah, right? Ernest Becker, who, by the way, is an atheist, says this. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. And he goes on to say, no human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. Wow. Listen to that. No human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. Listen, I'm as romantic as anybody in here. I love me some Hallmark movies, right? I've seen them. And the reason we love them is because, y'all, there is not one man alive. Sorry about you men that are in this place. There is not one man alive like the men on the Hallmark movies. <laughs> Do I get an amen from the testosterone in the room? You want to know why we like them? Because they've made them women. That's why. That's why we like them. Right? And oh, it's just wonderful. I mean, don't you think in the mornings we all want, good morning, beautiful. How was your night? Mine was wonderful. Bringing coffee with you by my side. When I look in your eyes and see your sweet face, it's a 
Good morning, beautiful day. Don't we all want to hear that? Yes. But can I just tell you, I think the psalm is better. 143.8. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. For I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. Do you realize that you have a God who knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's not one skeleton that can be revealed from your closet that he does not know about. And he loved you anyway so much he was worth, he was willing to die for you. And every morning he wakes up, uh, he wakes up, he's not asleep. Every morning he waits for you to wake up so that he can say to you, good morning, beautiful. How was your night? Because he is dying to talk to you. I love what Oswald Chambers says. He says, no love of the natural heart is safe unless the human heart has been satisfied by God first. If you have an empty love cup, I'm going to tell you what, there is no man alive that can keep it full. The only one that can keep that full is your creator. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to struggle loving other people if you can't first love yourself because you know that your creator loves you and you're significant and you are worthy to him. You were never to be perfect. His blood, he gave you his righteousness. We won't taste perfection until we get to heaven. But you are valued and you are loved. No other person can make you complete. Only Jesus will. And Elkanah means well. He has no idea what he's saying. But he cannot be enough because Hannah has broken places. And I'm going to tell you, she knew exactly what to do with them. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Let me tell you what she did. In all of her agony, she got up. That word in the Hebrew literally means to make a decisive action. You know how she's feeling. Matter of fact, she is so broken that when she's praying, the high priest literally thinks she's wasted, which tells us a lot about the high priest, to be honest, and it tells us about the times of the day because he, the culture was so bad, he hadn't seen true worship in so long that when he saw it, he didn't even recognize it, and he didn't recognize his own need for it. I'm going to tell you right now, he should have gotten off his perch, and he should have been bawling on the ground with Hannah, because we all know what came after that, right? But he missed it. She poured out her agony before the Lord. There is so much I want to tell you in so little time. I'm struggling. Because I'm trying to stay with three reviews. Listen, there is one thing I know. The Bible says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to know the good and perfect will of God. I'm going to tell you right now. He says, do not pattern your outward behavior like the world. And I don't just mean Satan's economy. I mean the world like is in this room, just the world, even the church. Because even in church, we put on masks because we think that's what other people want to see. He's saying, don't pattern your outward behavior based on what you think other people want to see or what will get you approval. Instead, let me come in and change you from the inside out, which, by the way, takes time. And I'm going to change you from the inside out. How? By the renewing of your mind. What does that mean? It is not a little quiet time that you just check the box. Renewal of the mind is a struggle because 
renewal of the mind first means you've got to know your mind. You have to know how you think. You need to stop and analyze what is your self-talk? What do you say? What is your go-to thought? Are you based in fear? I am. I can go from zero to 180 in fear like you have never seen. I can have a blip and in literally 30 seconds, I'm spinning a sign on the corner and I'm not going to be able to eat and I'm going to be evicted. Does, ever, does anybody else do, do stuff like that? Oh my gosh. I can literally go there so fast. I have to know how the ruts that I have made in my thinking so that I can grab those and go, that is junk. What does the Bible say? And I can combat it with the truth of God's word and a good counselor. And I can work through this so that my paths can be smoothed out and I no longer have those ruts. That is a struggle. So my question is, in the church, do we give people room to struggle? Because it's going to take time. We all have patterns. What we want to do is give them a quick fix and tie it up with a bow and tell them some scripture that in the end of the day, when they feel like crud and they can't get out of the bed, they're like, yeah, whatever. Right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? And I believe that our thoughts are huge. I'm not going to finish, Hannah. I'm not even going to try. I have five more minutes, maybe, but I want to read you some things because I think they're practical. Hopeless thoughts shape your perceptions and, ampl and amplify your down mood. Hopeless thoughts shape your perceptions and they amplify your down mood. These negative thoughts pivot on expectations such as you can't change and your life will continue to go bad. If you allow your thoughts to continue in a rut that tell you this is the way it's always going to be, it is never going to change, I am trapped, this is it, and I'm going to tell you if you allow those thoughts to continue, your mood will follow that. So will your behaviors. If you believe you'll never stop feeling miserable, hopeless thinking can have unwanted consequences. The first one is you're going to begin to feel and act like you're thinking. You're going to begin to feel and act like you're thinking. And number two, you are going to begin to validate your hopelessness by finding examples to support it. What does that mean? You're going to become a perpetual victim. You lose your keys. Oh, typical. My life sucks. This crap happens to me all the time. Never. I, I, I'm not kidding. Go ahead. I'm already down. Kick me harder. Now I need a $250 key fob that I don't even know why we have to have. So stupid. You know what I'm talking about. You have allowed your thoughts to just go rampant to where now you are feeling and acting like those thoughts are absolute truth. And then as you live your life, any experience you have that is negative, you are using to validate that thought. That is not the renewal of your mind. That is not what Hannah does. What Hannah does is she takes all this mess and emotion, and by the way, feelings are important because they're telling you what's going on inside. But feelings are not truth. They're indicators. They are telling you what's up, and you need to delve down, and you need to know, and you need to compare it to the Word of God and renew your mind. And this never stops. It is constant. And she went to the Lord, and I'm telling you what, she laid it out. I love that. There's more room on the outside than the inside, so let it out. Cry it out. Curse it out. Nobody's there. We're not judging you. God is a big boy. Pour it out. And I'm going to tell you, when we get back next week, I'm going to finish up, Hannah. And I'm going to tell you the two things she knew that held her together. Number one, she knew that God was Yahweh. She called him that 18 times in her prayer. That's his personal name. 
that he is intimately acquainted. He is the loving God, great loving kindness. And she also knew he was the Lord of the angel armies. There's nothing impossible. I remember walking in my neighborhood over two years ago when I thought, just slip my wrist, I'm out, I'm done. And I knew two things. God loves me. He's in charge. There's nothing he cannot do. God loves me and he's in charge. God loves me and he's in charge. God loves me and he's in charge. So guess what? All this fear, God loves me and he is in charge. And you begin to claim that before you feel it. Because that is truth. And Hannah took her hopelessness, her feeling of doom and powerlessness and isolation, and she took it to the Lord, and she let it rip, and she reminded her, she reminded herself, God loves me. How does she know that? We'll look at it next week. And he is in charge. And when she left, her countenance changed. Not her circumstances. Her countenance. And we'll look at that. Hey, you go out this week and you remind yourself of those two things. God is crazy about you. He's just crazy about you. He sings over you. I sing over my kids. He's crazy about you. And guess what? Whether you know it or not, he's still on his throne. He's in charge. And we'll continue next week. Go out and find a friend because you know how many women need to hear this? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the reminder, God, we're not hopeless. We believe in the living hope. Because when it comes to power, there is no one who compares to you. You are the power source for all creation. When it comes to a problem, Lord, you made everything out of nothing. You don't even need anything to start with. Problem solver, you're the greatest problem solver. And Lord, if you're allowing us to walk through it, it is for our good and your glory, and we are growing, so Lord, let us learn it all. And isolation, Lord, we will never feel isolation because you have deposited your very nature inside of us, and you have said to me, Shannon, you are not alone. I will never leave you alone. And so, God, I pray that as we go out this week, we will remember that. And we will live with a countenance that is bright, even amidst terrible circumstances, that we are loved and you are in charge. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.